Support for the Legislative Gazette comes from New York State United Teachers, a union of professionals standing with more than 600,000 workers in education, human services, and healthcare with the Our Voice, Our Values, Our Union campaign. And United University Professions, representing 37,000 academic and professional employees at SUNY campuses and teaching hospitals across New York State. Frederick E. Cole, President, UUPinfo.org. Protesters rallied early this week against the end of New York's eviction moratorium, blocking one of the entrances to the state capitol, as Governor Kathy Hochul confirmed that the tenant protection law will expire this weekend, January 15th. More now from the Legislative Gazette's Karen DeWitt. A few dozen tenant advocates with the group Housing Justice for All braved Tuesday's cold temperatures to rally outside of the state capitol. They barricaded one of the entrances to the building with tables, chairs, and other furniture that they say could end up on sidewalks, along with renters if the state does not enact new tenant protections before the eviction moratorium ends on Saturday. Genevieve Rand of Ithaca says a measure known as the Good Cause Eviction Bill would protect as many as 4 million New Yorkers from rent gouging and arbitrary evictions. It's already in effect in four cities in New York, including Albany. We need to pass Good Cause now. There are dozens, if not hundreds, of legislators who are ready to vote for this bill today. They worry that without protections in place, the end of the moratorium could trigger a deluge of evictions in the middle of the winter and during a coronavirus surge. But with the legislature set to adjourn for the week on Wednesday, it seems unlikely the bills could pass in time. Governor Hochul at the end of August extended the moratorium, begun in 2020, for another four and a half months. Hochul says she understands the growing anxiety, but she says it will not be renewed. What we want to do is let people know that that is concluding very shortly. According to the National Equity Atlas, a research group based at the University of Southern California, nearly 600,000 New York households remain behind on their rent for a total of $1.9 billion. Some are waiting for federal and state subsidies to be distributed, while many either did not apply for the programs or applied directly to their landlords for help. Hochul says the Emergency Assistance Rental Program portal, which closed in November after it exhausted its $2.4 billion in federal funds, is reopening. A court ordered that the portal be reactivated after the Legal Aid Society brought a lawsuit against the closure. The governor says tenants who apply will have their eviction stayed for a short time, but she warns that the program still lacks funds, despite a request from the federal government to shift money to New York from other states that have not used up their allotment. We asked the Department of Treasury for over 900, maybe $978 million of that money to come to New York to help our backlog, because by then we had probably a billion dollars worth of individuals who were seeking a billion dollars worth of claims. That money, despite the efforts, resulted in $27 million. We just found that out this week. So that's not going to get us over the finish line. Hochul, who says she finds the federal government's failure to act very frustrating, says she's written a letter, also signed by California Governor Gavin Newsom, among others, to ask for more help. In Albany, I'm Karen DeWitt. I'm 
are listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York State government and politics. I'm David Gustino. Joining us now, Legislative Gazette political observer Alan Shartok. Well, Alan, the Coalition for Open Government, a nonpartisan advocacy group in New York, released a study this week. They looked at 19 county boards of election across the state for compliance with the state's freedom of information law and open meetings laws, laws that are created to affirm the public's right of access to government decision-making. Guess what, Alan? The report, well, didn't go so well. Many of the county boards of election, including the Albany County Board of Election, not respond to FOIL requests. We know as journalists that one of the common tactics among organizations or politicians that are FOILed is to ignore it and it'll go away sort of thing. So open government, open meetings and attempts to quash that by those in power. Got to have open meetings. If you don't have that, then how can you have democracy from the people? How can people be watching what you're doing? How can they include themselves in? And so this is very disturbing. I mean, when people say, okay, I'm not going to listen. I'm not going to respond. That's not good. It's one thing when it's a personal letter, but when it's a governmental effort, when it is government being told, keep your meetings open, they've got to do it. The fact that they don't shows creeping Trumpism. Trump did what he wanted. He didn't do what he didn't want. We are now seeing members of the United States Congress being called up to appear before the January 6th committee, and they say, no, I'm not coming. When was that allowable? So this is permeating the entire fabric of government, including, as you raise it properly here, state government. The state of New York, obviously a blue state, Alan, and the Democrats are in control of both houses of the legislature and the governor's office. And you and I have talked about, you know, the, what's the Republican strategy in New York? They seem to have this leading candidate, Lee Zeldin, who is an avowed Trumper. Why mm -hmm. would they go in that direction? Now there's another potential candidate. We've heard his name before, a hedge funder. His name is Harry Wilson. In a recent Times Union column, there was a look at him. Here's what how it's described by Chris Churchill. Glenn Youngkin is a mild-mannered Republican with a hedge fund background who ran for governor in a blue state. Despite almost no political experience, he won his Virginia election and will take office later this week. Harry Wilson is a mild-mannered Republican with a hedge fund background who might just run for governor in our very blue state. He, too, has limited political experience, and he may be the best shot New York Republicans have in winning in November. He ran for state controller, came close, actually, than you would think, against Tom DiNapoli. He's 50 years old, grew up in Johnstown. Do the Republicans have any chance at all, number one? And could this be a potential answer if he was the front runner? Well, as you know, David, I live in Blue State, Massachusetts, from whence you came. And you do know the people of Massachusetts, as blue as a blue state can be, regularly elect Republicans because they want to send messages, I believe, to the Democrats, don't take us for granted. We want somebody up there who can watch the store. So if the Republicans nominate a Trumper like Zeldin for governor, they'll lose. They'll lose big. If they nominate a George Pataki type somebody who is not an avowed Trumper or who is very cautious about his relationship with Trump, as the present governor Baker of Massachusetts has been, now leaving office and very successful, they might just take it. After all, remember Pataki, three-term Pataki. He may not have been to a lot of our liking personally, but in fact, 
after the chaos surrounding the verbiage of the senior Cuomo, Mario Cuomo, people were ready for a little bit of a rest. So if you nominate a Republican who does not bear the hallmarks of the Trumpian age, you might have something. I doubt it. It depends on who the Democrats go with. Kathy Hochul has been doing a competent job, as I have been saying all along, and I have a feeling that it's going to be tough to beat her. If Andrew was still in office and running for a fourth term, I don't know. Legislative Gazette political observer Alan Charton. listening to the Legislative Gazette, program about New York State government and politics. I'm David Gustina. Hospitals in central New York, the Mohawk Valley, and the North Country have been told to stop non-essential elective operations for at least two weeks because of low patient bed capacity. The Legislative Gazette's Dave Lucas with more. Forty hospitals were ordered Saturday to cancel elective procedures. Among them, two Utica hospitals with acute care beds and emergency services operated by Mohawk Valley Health System, Faxton St. Luke's Healthcare, and St. Elizabeth Medical Center. MVHS President Darlene Strumstead. What we are expecting to see is a decrease in the total surgeries that are available to this community. By probably, we'll be doing maybe one-fourth of surgeries and procedures than we have previously done. So that does have an impact on patients. It has an impact on the medical staff, and it certainly has an impact on the hospital. But that said, we are also really struggling, like all hospitals in central New York, with staff shortages, and that also has had an impact. So it's not just one thing, it's basically two things that are impacting our ability to do surgery. Nathan Littower Hospital and Nursing Home in the Fulton County city of Gloversville also made the list. The facility responded to a request for comment by email writing in part that it is asking the Department of Health to review the decision. Quote, the healthcare organization's exception is largely based on the organization aligning more closely to the capital region. For two years, Litar has been collaborating weekly, sometimes daily, to load balance COVID hospitalizations and transfer demands with capital region hospitals. The hospital does not regularly communicate with hospitals to the west. Additionally, surgeries at Litar are largely not impacted by fluctuating COVID surges. Also listed, A.O. Fox Memorial Hospital in Oneonta, Cobleskill Regional Hospital, and Little Falls Hospital, all affiliates of the Bassett Healthcare Network, whose chief of surgical services is Dr. Nick Hellenthal. We're continuing to try to accommodate you know, patients with non-elective matters as best as we can. They've been pretty successful in that. Uh, we've had to limit truly elective procedures, which are procedures 
and surgeries that are not done for cancer, for pain, for other debilitating things. So if it's a truly elective procedure, we sort of had to cut back on those. Helenthal encourages people not to ignore medical emergencies. They should come to the ER or seek care. We've been doing a pretty good job of getting there. A lot of this is at the discretion of the surgeons or practitioners as to what's elective um, versus, um, you know, what is not truly elective. And so most, I think the practitioners do a pretty good job at, you know, siphoning out which surgeries are truly elective. Helenthal concedes it is difficult for patients and their families trying to plan and for surgeons trying to adhere to a schedule. The State Department of Health also says if any hospital's occupancy is above 95%, they are further required to halt elective surgeries at hospital-owned ambulatory surgical centers for a minimum of two weeks. You can find the full list of affected facilities at wamc.org. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm Dave Lucas. After missing a 2021 deadline to decide the issue, a wage board of the New York State Department of Labor has been meeting to determine if overtime rules for agricultural workers should be changed. Its latest meeting took more testimony on whether the state should retain the current 60-hour threshold or lower it. The Legislative Gazette's Pat Bradley explains. Three hearings are being held this month by the Farm Labor Wage Board after it delayed a final decision last month on whether to change the overtime threshold. At the first meeting this month, New York Department of Labor Commissioner Roberta Reardon reviewed the charge of the board. The task of this reconvened Farm Laborers Wage Board is narrowly focused on the issue of overtime. While you can recommend that the overtime threshold be reduced, you cannot recommend an increase in the threshold, which is currently set at 60 hours. In October, Farm Credit East issued an analysis on the economic impact of overtime pay. Knowledge Exchange Group Director Chris Lawton said the analysis found farm production costs would increase significantly if the overtime threshold is lowered. While the board may be narrowly focused on the matter of the overtime threshold, Our analysis shows that the increase in overtime costs has to be considered in conjunction with other factors, such as recent increases in the minimum wage. Related expenses, such as payroll taxes and workers' compensation costs, have also increased accordingly. Taken together, the combination of overtime and wage increases is estimated to increase farm labor costs by $264 million per year, or 42% should the threshold be reduced from 60 to 40 hours. And we estimate a 20% reduction in farm income from these increased labor costs due to overtime on top of minimum wage increases. Most testimony came from the agriculture sector, which warned lowering the overtime threshold not only threatens individual farms, but the state's agriculture industry. High school teacher Zachary McCoosh was raised on a dairy farm and currently teaches an introduction to agriculture class. He opposes lowering the overtime threshold. I completely understand the calls for lowering the threshold because of calls for equality. However, small farms are not on an equal playing field with larger farms. Today, massive farms have grown increasingly larger while small farms disappear. Maintaining the threshold may not be equal, but it is equitable. A few farmers testified in favor of lowering the threshold. 
Among them was Laura Culligan, owner of a certified organic vegetable farm in Erie County called Dirt Rich Farm. I think it's important to keep in mind that, as I understand it, the root of the discussion today is not Mother Nature, but the fact that people who work on farms were excluded from overtime protections, the Federal Fair Labor Standards Act of 1938, at the insistence of openly racist Southern state senators. It's been 84 years. It's time to move past this embarrassing legacy and towards giving farm employees the same overtime protections that all other workers enjoy. There will always be those who say that the economic conditions make lowering the overtime threshold impossible for farmers. Other industries like retail have figured out how to run businesses that have labor needs that vary seasonally while operating under a 40-hour overtime threshold. Agriculture can, too. The three-member Farm Wage Board will hold two more virtual meetings on January 18th and January 20th, both beginning at 5 p.m. You can watch the latest meeting at wamc.org. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm Pat Bradley. You are listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York state government and politics. I'm David Gustina. In her State of the State address this month, New York Governor Kathy Hochul announced plans to spend $4 billion over five years on health care worker wages and bonuses. It's a move health care providers like the Wildwood program say would offer a lifeline amid a staffing crisis. The Legislative Gazette's Jim Lavoulis spoke with Lou Deep, CEO of the Disability Services Provider, about Governor Hochul's proposal. But Jim, it's going to have a tremendous impact uh, for us. Um, you know, agencies in the in healthcare and particularly in the disabilities field, uh, we have been struggling for the better part of a decade to try to keep up with other sectors in terms of wages. Uh, for our direct support workers. And this kind of investment is really going to be a game changer for us um, in terms of being able to recruit and and retain, um, you know, good qualified staff to provide the necessary supports for people with disabilities and their families. And how would you characterize the disability services industry now when it comes to staffing? Well, we're in an extended crisis right now. Um, It's been ongoing even prior to covid COVID certainly has made things um, a lot harder, Um, but we are in a place right now um, where literally um, agencies are having to make very difficult decisions about programs um, closing or, you know, remaining open during this time. Um, We're having a lot of difficulties trying to even just staff um, our 24-hour residential settings, um, which we absolutely have to do. These are people's homes. Um, you know, and a lot of people with disabilities are not getting the services that they they need um, on a day-to-day basis or consistently, and that's been ongoing for, for quite a long time now, um, th- certainly throughout this pandemic, um, but even before agencies were having to make some difficult choices just because of our inability to, um, you know, attract and, and keep staff um, because of the um, wages we're able to pay. Um, you know, we are, are lower over time. Our starting wages um, have been uh, more and more in alignment with the minimum wage because of, of rate cuts to this industry, again, over the part of a decade or so. 
And, you know, it's, it's, it's wonderful work. It's noble work, but it's also very challenging. Um, the people who support people with disabilities and their families, um, you know, they are responsible for their well-being. They are providing medications. They are helping them, you know, uh, manage their behavior so they don't hurt themselves or others. They are responsible for their personal hygiene and care. Um, and, and to have that become more of a minimum wage job um, is really challenging for people to stay in those jobs because they've got to, you know, they've got to, um, they've got to support themselves. They've got to support their families. And often people in those roles are working two to three jobs just to make ends meet. When we last spoke in November 2020, you said Wildwood programs had about 725 employees at that point down from uh, 750. Where does the company sit now in regards to that? I believe we're probably more around um, 650 to 675 at this point, Jim. Um, this this ongoing crisis has had a profound impact on on our workforce, um, and it's just we cannot get people in here at the wages that we are able to pay based off of off of our rates. So, you know, again, the news from from Governor Hochul's office, you know, that um, you know that there's there might be this multi-year investment in our field is is the lifeline we needed it's it's encouraging um it's something that we've been needing desperately um you know the fact that we as a disabilities field and healthcare in general is is such a priority for this administration um it's something that is encouraging we've needed for so long and again it, it really could be a game changer in terms of our ability to stay solvent to be able to continue to provide supports for people and families and if Governor Hochul's proposals of $3,000 bonuses for full-time health care workers and, and then cost of living adjustments go into effect, are you able to estimate what the average Wildwood care provider would make if these proposals go through? Currently, um, our, our starting salaries um, for those uh, positions are, are right around $15 an hour um, with opportunities to make a little bit more depending on setting and other other factors. But I think, you know, with those kind of investments, we could easily get a few dollars beyond that um, and start really talking about um, wages that are fair for people. Um, I mean, we can never pay them enough for, for the work that they do and the impact that they have on people's lives. But at least this kind of a, of a prolonged investment will help us, you know, start moving towards a, a wage um, that's fair and, and that um, has dignity for those very important positions. And you mentioned the uh, residential services that Wildwood provides. Now, some lawmakers and, and advocates say Governor Hochul's proposals for health care workers do not include any pledges to increase pay for home care workers. Are those mm-hmm. one and the same? Are, are we talking about the same here when you say residential mm-hmm. and these advocates say home care workers? Are those one and the same or are they different? Well, it's hard to tell because I haven't seen those exact quotes from people, but my guess is that they're talking about, in terms of home care workers, you know, independent organizations that um, push in and help people in the community and in their homes or their apartments. And we do, you know, there's a lot of overlap there, and I think we're probably interchanging some of those, um, you know, phrases and and stuff. But I think this investment, as I read it, is really – um, overall investment in healthcare, and I do think it, it really incorporates all um, of those aspects, including home health aides and and um, you know positions that we support here at Wildwood. And one idea of of Governor Hochul's uh, proposals that she mentioned is, is attracting uh, people uh, from outside the current New York healthcare 
uh, mm-hmm. field. Uh, when you're looking, you know, you mentioned, you know, you're down to about 650-ish uh, employees, at, you know, hoping, I think, if I'm getting the number right, to get to about 750. Is, is that right? Um, that is correct. Yep. How, how wide is your, your breath now when you're, when you're looking for workers? I mean, we, you know, Wildwood specifically, but I'm sure the the field as I'm under, you know, as I'm talking to other um, executive directors, we're casting as wide a net as we as we can. You know, we're trying to think as creatively as possible. We're we're going into communities, you know, where we typically may not have had as many, um, you know, representation in our workforce be- before. Um, but I think these ideas that the governor is proposing. Um, you know, are are good ones. They're solid ones. We really should be reaching out to, you know, other populations that we haven't before and try to connect, you know, um, you know, maybe underrepresented uh, populations um, that are looking for work with, you know, this, this sector, because we're constantly needing, um, you know, good staff to, to help, you know, um, forward our missions. We've been talking mostly about uh, pay, bonuses, cost of living adjustments. Um, are there any other ideas uh, about how to, to retain the workers in this workforce? Well, I think, you know, we're also excited that there's a new acting commissioner, Carrie Neifeld, for OPWDD. And, um, you know, she has been already doing a lot of outreach to to provider networks and, and community um, and, and she's got some good ideas and she's, you know, I would say both she and the governor, we have found so far to just be willing to listen um, to the providers and to understand, you know, kind of the challenges that we're facing. You know, this is a, um, a heavily regulated environment. And so I think they're looking at ways that they might be able to, you know, while maintaining, obviously, the highest, you know, um, standards of safety for people, but trying to kind of scale back some of the regulatory stuff that that would allow, um, you know, our workforce to just be able to focus on their work and their actual support of people. Um, so that's that's one area. But I think really it is the investment. We can't do what we need to do um, for people and families if we don't have the, um, the, the, the people here, if we don't have the dedicated workforce that we need, you know, that are professional, that are committed, that are coming in every day and and happy and satisfied with what they do. And in order to, to be that, they, they need a wage um, that reflects that and to, that helps them support themselves and their families. Lou Deep is the CEO of Wildwood Programs. Lou, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Jim. And that about does it for this week's show. We had help from the New York State Public Radio Network. For copies, call 1-800-323-9262. That's 1-800-323-9262. Ask for program number 2202. Or just listen or schedule a podcast on the web at wamc.org. And join us again next week at the same time for more news on New York State government, politics, for the Legislative Gazette. I'm David Gustina.